going to start a new series for the next uh, couple months, month and a half, into Christmas time on First Peter. And, and the challenge in this passage, I think the, the, the truth we're looking at is how do you thrive when you find yourself marginalized? Uh, when, as, as Christians, we find ourselves persecuted or at the very least um, pushed to the side. How do, how do we react in that environment, and how, where does Christianity, what do we do? I, I don't know what you think about the spiritual state of our country, uh, but I would say we are rapidly, rapidly, rapidly going further away from God. Rapidly going further away from God. And uh, those, that is just, that's been true for, for years. It's been true for decades. But it's like the... the, the um, descent away from God is just, it's just growing faster, picking up momentum. When we have national parties, uh, politically, that, v- that vote as a group that they don't want God to be part of their platform, okay, that, I mean, that just says something. And, and that's not to pick a political party. I'm not even getting into that. That's not even the point. The point is the fact that, that when you take the pulse of society, it is vastly different. And yet we have people that want to defend the fact and say, you know, well, we're a Christian nation. There's a survey by Pew Research Center that was called the Nuns on the Rise, N-O-N-E-S, none, like I don't want any, the Nuns on the Rise. And what they're saying is that those who, who describe themselves as with no religious affiliation are greater today than they were five years ago. Five years ago, those that would say, I don't have any religious affiliation. And they wouldn't necessarily be atheists, necessarily, they would just, but they would just say, I, I don't have any religious affiliation. They've grown from 15% of the population to um, 20% of the population in just five years. Five years. Okay, now, when you look a little deeper at the numbers, the growth um, of the unaffiliated Americans, sometimes called the rise of the nuns, is largely driven by generational replacement, the gradual supplanting of older generations by newer ones. A third of adults under 30 have no religious affiliation. That, raise your hand if you're under 30 in the room. Okay, that's about two-thirds of our group here. Um, the under 30 crowd, um, raise your hand if you feel like you're under 30. Yeah, that's everybody over 30. All right, um, <laughs> a thir- under, th- under 30, those under 30 have no religious affi- affiliation, that have no religious uh, affiliation, make up 32% of that age bracket. 32% of those under 30 have no religious affiliation. Compared with 1 in 10 who are 65 and older. So those who are 65 and older, only 9% have no religious affiliation. So when you look at 20%, you say, well, that's not that bad. Well, when you look at those under 30, it is. The, the groups that are, that are not, and, and most of them would say, well, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. They, they wouldn't necessarily deny that there's a God or deny... Um, they, they don't really know. It's really, they don't even have a vote, honestly. They just, I don't, they're ambivalent towards God. They just, whatever. And, and what's happening in our nation, and this is the struggle as believers, like what do we do about this? What do we do about this? And so for many people, what they've done is they've said, you know what, what we need to do is we need to become more politically active. And if we get more active politically as Christians, representing the things that we represent in, in politics, then we can change things. And so you have, you know, focus on the family, which I'm, I, I love that ministry, thankful for them. Um, and the Christian Coalition, some of you guys don't even know what that is, but that was, that was 20, 30 years ago. 
Christian coalition, basically for about 40 years, Christian conservatives, for the most part, have, have begun to mobilize and inform one another and understand, you know, here's what different politicians believe about homosexuality. Here's what different politicians believe about abortion. Here's what different politicians believe about prayer in schools. Here's what diff- different politicians believe about whatever. And they have a list of kind of litmus test pet things that, that are, are not unimportant. They're, they're important. They're relevant. But that's how you decide who you're going to vote for, who you're not going to vote for. And they've mobilized and they've gotten several elections. They've gotten their guy elected, but their guy didn't change things. It might have declined at a slower rate than other guys would have caused the decline of our nation morally or spiritually. But nonetheless, we've continued to slide further and further away from God with every consecutive decade for the last hundred years. That's a fact. And so the political movement of Christians has not brought change. Why not? Because that's not what God has called us to be about. Now let me qualify this one second and just say this. In the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that we are to be salt and light. And, and what is salt if it loses its saltiness? And so that, that, does in, that kind of figures into this, that, that, that we, are, we have influence. Salt, um, I don't know if you've ever put salt on an open wound before, but it has an antiseptic tendency that it kind of cleanses but it also stings really bad it hurts right and so there's a sense where christians create kind of a sting in culture as they call people back to morality and back to to jesus right and and that's not a bad thing and i think we need to continue to do our civic duty and be you know that voice certainly but what is our priority what is the goal of our lives what is the main thing god has called us to and he's called us to make disciples that's what he's called us to He's called us not to mobilize for politics. He's called us to make disciples. And the reason why Christians and Christianity has declined and, and more people are irreligious today in our nation than, than more religious, the reason why so many people are dependent upon the government is because all these things that the populations of people depend upon the government are growing is because the church hasn't been making disciples, hasn't been caring for people in need, and now it's gotten so out of hand that we have been marginalized and pushed to the side. And so Christians right now in America are frustrated, many are frustrated because they feel ostracized, they feel marginalized, and they feel pushed aside. And so, so they, they're, how do they respond to that? Well, some of them, are, they're on, in war, man. They're fighting to get Christmas back in, in the holidays. We, you know, let's get Christmas back in Target and Christmas back in Walmart. Let's get them to declare Christmas and stop saying happy holidays. You know, that, that will fix our country. Okay, um, and, and, or they're saying, let's get prayer back in school. We, if, we, if we could just pray back in school, why don't we just pray? You know, I, things would be better if Christians just prayed instead of fighting about where we can pray and where we can't pray. You can pray anywhere you want. Let's pray. Let's just start praying. And, and so we, we fight over that. We fight over all these different things instead of saying, you know what? Or, or we, we try to isolate ourselves. We say, let's get away from the world because we don't want to get corrupt and messed up like the world. So let's circle the wagons and let's turn inward. And we'll create our own little culture, a little Christian bubble with our own music and our own T-shirts and our own, you know, coffee blends and our own whatever. And we'll have our own little bubble. And that's like the utopian Christian society right there. And, and we'll stay inside there so we don't get outside and we get dirty, get messed up. And yet God's called us to live in this tension where we're not to be like the world, but we're also called to be in the world. The fact that you're still breathing right now is, is a confirmation that God has a plan for you to be light in a dark place. 
And I, I want you to say, I want you to understand that if things don't change in our nation, we're going towards bankruptcy so rapidly as a nation that it, times are going to become much more desperate. And my question is, what are Christians going to do in that moment of need when there is an openness in our nation where people realize, man, there's a need um, that, that government has not fulfilled, that education hasn't fulfilled, that science hasn't fulfilled. What is the hope? What, is the, what, are, you, what are we going to be doing? Are we going to be ready in that moment to wash the feet of our neighbors, to serve people who are in need, to, to take the little bit we have and break our loaf and share it with somebody else? Are we going to be in a position and in a posture that we care about our neighborhoods, that we care about our communities, that people know to look to you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your families, because you're the person with the hope. You're the person who, is, who shows the generosity of the gospel and the way you live your life, that, that you don't just push your religious belief system, but, but it overflows from your life. The gospel is evident in your life, and you not only are living it, but you, in, you share it in the context of a posture of service and love and care for other people. You know, are we going to be ready? Because as things get darker, that's, yeah, that's discouraging in one sense, but, but boy, the light shines so much brighter, doesn't it? Where's the church growing the fastest in the world is the church growing the fastest right now. And I would have to say it's probably in China. So that's a communist nation. Yeah, it's not a God-fearing nation, certainly. It is a communist, anti-God, okay, atheistic nation. And yet the gospel is exploding through the underground church, not through the state-sponsored church, not through the church that has freedom because they, they're in bed with the government, but the church that is flourishing underground and there is more i understand that there are more believers in the underground church more followers of christ than there are official members of the communist party now i mean do you understand that they could overthrow the communist government right now as far as numbers go if they wanted to but that's not what god's called them to god has called them to make disciples and they're going to change if their nation changes it will because of the it will be because the hearts and the lives of people have changed and they have found king jesus you, you understand what i'm saying Okay, so, so what do we do when we find ourselves as a culture, we find Christians more rapidly marginalized, how do we respond to that? And, and, and what I would like to give you, the hope I'd like to give you is as we study through 1 Peter, my prayer is that we will see that God has called us in the midst of darkness to thrive, to thrive. Man, you could thrive in this environment, but we're going to have to change our thinking. This is an interesting book called um, Everyday Church. And they did some research, um, or they quoted an article by a guy, Stuart Murray, after Christendom. Um, and he, he talks about some traits, and I just want to go over seven quick traits. You don't even have to write this down. If you want this, I can give this to you later. But, um, but I want to read these bullets for you. Seven traits of life after Christendom. Now, Christendom is like the Christian kingdom. That's what that's referring to. And so what he's saying is the way things were in America in the past is we lived under Christendom. We had lived under this assumption that even though Jesus wasn't the king of our nation. He wasn't our president necessarily. We were a religious nation, and Christianity pretty much had the upper hand on all other belief systems, and it was the dominant um, narrative of our culture. And so politicians, if you look at speeches, um, going back to, if you looked at Ronald Reagan and before Ronald Reagan, okay, and even Clinton a little bit, but from Ronald Reagan and, and the, the presidents before him, almost every one of their inaugural speeches and their major speeches were laced with biblical terminology, like we are a city on a hill, Reagan said. 
Where does he get that language from? It was biblical concepts that the culture understood. But you say we're a city on a hill today, and people are like, what does that mean? They don't understand that that's a biblical phrase. See, but the culture is biblically illiterate. Christendom is gone. It is demolished. It's past. We are a post-Christian nation. Post-Christian. That is no disrespect to our history. We're thankful for our history. Oh, that God would turn it around. But you know what? The goal isn't for us to be Christendom. The goal is for us to live the gospel in our lives. And if we do that, God will take care of the other stuff. But here's some of changes in thinking that need to come about in our lives. We need to move from center to the margins. Center to the margins. In other words, um, instead of Christianity, Christendom being the center of all things in our culture, we need to realize that we're on the margins and we need to thrive there in the margins. The second thing, um, from majority to minority. From being a majority to understand we're the minority now. Wake up to that. You're, we're not the majority, so stop expecting that you're supposed to get special privileges for being part of the majority because you're no longer the majority. Christians are the minority. Okay? Understand that? Uh, thirdly, from settlers to sojourners. This is, I think, arguably, you could, you could argue this was a sin of Christendom. We became settlers. We began to establish a country where we just felt like we got heaven on earth. We got heaven on earth. Man, we got it so good down here. This is awesome. We got a God and country. This is great. And, and that's not all bad. It's not all bad, but God has called us to be sojourners, as we're going to see in this passage, that we're exiles. This is not... Our citizenship, you might be an American, that's wonderful, praise God for that, but, but more importantly, as a follower of Christ, your citizenship is in heaven, understand? And so we, we need to move from being a settler where we're trying to find heaven on earth to where we realize we're passing through. We're passing through. My identity, first and foremost, is as a follower of Christ into King Jesus. Secondly, I'm certainly a, a, a citizen of, of America, and I'm thankful for that even today. But we are no longer settlers. We, we need to understand we're sojourners. From privilege to plurality. For, from privilege to pl- pl- plurality. We're no longer the privileged group, but we're one of many groups with many belief systems, with many opinions, with many voices. Get over it. <laughs> Get over it. Um, from control to witness. So no longer can we control the schools, control the political conversation, control the media, control those things, but God has called us to be a witness. So forget, we don't have the control. Move past that. Let's shift to a thinking where, man, we're all about the witness. We all about, we want to proclaim Christ. Controlling, you know, the, the systems don't matter. It's the freedom to witness, which God has given us. Um, the last two is from maintenance to mission. We're trying to maintain status quo, to live on mission. And lastly, from institution to movement. You know, the last 75, 80 years in our nation, 100 years for that matter, last century, Christians have been content just to be the institution. And we're the institution. We're the, we're the boss. We're the, and as they're slowly being marginalized by groups that want to marginalize Christianity and silence the voice of Christ in our nation, the conscience of Christ in our nation, stop trying to defend the institution. Understand that God has called us to be about a movement. And a movement is decentralized. A movement is not... Um, set at some geographical location where we have some ginormous headquarters and palace where we push out from. No, God has called us to be decentralized. He's called us to be decentralized. He's called us to be a movement. If you look in your Bibles, 1 Peter, we find a group of people that found themselves marginalized. Now, now to, be, to be fair, 
At this point in world history, Christianity had never been the dominant religion. Judaism had been, but they're in the Roman Empire, and so they're under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And then Christ comes in the midst of that, and um, he establishes the church, and he commissions the disciples, and they spread out, taking the gospel to the known world. And Peter is one of the, uh, the first, you know, the key kind of leader. Then it seems that Paul becomes the center point um, in, uh, in the church. But Peter begins to branch out, and, um, and he writes this letter to a group of people. Um, and he, he mentions later on in this letter, he calls the nation, those that live in, the people he's writing to, those who live in Babylon. Now, Babylon had been a nation that had fallen years before. But it was a way that the persecution was increasing. Nero was coming into power, many believe, and he was the Caesar of that day. And Nero hated Christians, and he killed a bunch of them. Uh, and he killed Peter, as a matter of fact. And so to so as to not pick a fight with the Roman Empire, he writes to those in Babylon because they understood that Babylon represented the world powers. And they knew that Babylon, you could take Babylon and insert Rome. It's the same thing, right? And so it was a code for saying, those of you that are living in oppression, marginalized by the world, the powers that be, listen up because there's some things you need to understand. And so he writes this letter, and here's what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Where is those places? That's kind of a circular route of postal locations that are all in the area that we know today as modern-day Turkey. Modern-day Turkey. Okay, so if you go to Israel and you go north of Israel, north of the Mediterranean Sea, you're going to find um, north of that area up there is Galatia, Cappadocia. Um, it's all in that region there. And so he's speaking to the, the, the believers that are scattered. The di- dispersion was one of the terms that was used to s- describe believers that, back then, and, and Jews for that matter, that after Rome had come in and squashed Judaism and, um, and had tight reins on Christianity, believers in the one true God were scattered. They were dispersed. They're known as the diaspora. They were dispersed throughout the world. And so he calls them the dispersed ones, the dispersion. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect of the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, who by God's power are being kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That's the first five verses, which should be more than enough for us to handle uh, this morning. So what, what is he saying? Well, first of all, he's telling us if we're going to thrive, the first thing we need to do is we need to realize our homeland. We need to realize our homeland. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, uh, elect exiles. Now, that word exiles is a reference to pilgrims or sojourners. To be a sojourner means you, you, you kind of have some rights in the country, but you're, you're, uh, you're, it's like being a legal um, alien. You, you don't really 
you're not a, a citizen per se, but you have the rights of some of the rights of citizenship. You're, you're a legal alien. You're, you're technically not a citizen, but, but you have rights in that land. And so th- when, the, when the nation you're visiting, I, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to travel. Um, this is one of the things that as bad as things could be in our country, I'm thankful to still be uh, a citizen of, of United States of America. I'm thankful to be in this nation. When I have traveled to other countries and looked at the way that they have done things and looked at the challenges that people are living with, it never ceases to, um, to cause me to be thankful to come back to the United States and live uh, in the country that God has blessed us to live in. But when you're in another country, it's interesting Like to be, for instance, in Uganda. I was able to be in a couple mission trips in, in, uh, on a couple mission trips in Uganda. And to look at, there's a lot of things in that culture that are messed up. Man, there's a lot of problems, there's a lot of power issues, a lot of, and there's a lot of need for the gospel, yet there's a hunger for the gospel, and, and God's doing some neat things in Uganda. But when I'm there, there's certain things I don't like, there's certain things, like for instance, I was riding on a, a, a Boda, which is like a little motorcycle, on the back of a, a Boda Boda, they call them, because um, we needed to get downtown to pay for something really quick for a, in part of our trip, and um, to go in a taxi or car, or the you know, bus with our missionaries would take forever. So they put us on the back of this motorcycle. Okay, well, there, you don't have to follow the rules of you know, drive on the right side or the left side. Actually, it's opposite for that matter. And, um, and the motorcycles go wherever they want to go, whenever they want to go. They just go. It doesn't matter about lights. It doesn't matter about other vehicles. It doesn't matter about curbs. It doesn't matter about... And so the taxi motorcycle guys, if you need to get somewhere fast, just get on the back of one of their, and they'll get you there. And you might not make it, but if you do make it, you'll make it there a lot faster if you go any other route. Now, I could get mad about that. I mean, it was convenient. It was kind of fun, and uh, it was an interesting trip, and we're zigging and zagging and bobbing and weaving, and it was crazy. And I'm thinking, if Janet knew what I was doing right now, I would be in so much trouble. And, um, you know, but, but we had to get to our place. We got there. We got back, and praise, praise the Lord for that, and we, we, we got back safely. But nonetheless, I could get mad and just be like, you know, what are you thinking? You're almost going to kill me. You're going to kill everybody else. What are you driving like this? What are you? But, you know, I, that's not my place is to come into that country and tell them how to do their traffic. You know, I, I'm just there on a mission trip with the goal of proclaiming the gospel. You know, they can do their traffic however they want to do their traffic. That's not, I'm not here to fix their traffic. I'm here to proclaim the gospel. You understand? And there's this freedom being in Uganda where there's a lot of things that were problems in the nation. I could see the gospel influencing, and I, and I had to hope in the prayer the gospel would influence, that, the, that Jesus would influence and change. But at the end of the day, my goal wasn't to come there and to make Uganda look like America. First of all, that wouldn't be necessarily good. And second of all, that, that's not my objective. You understand? And so there's this freedom when you recognize, you know what, I'm not a citizen here primarily. I'm visiting and so when people don't like me or I don't like things about their, it, it doesn't matter because I don't necessarily have a dog in that race because God has not called me to live as a citizen of Uganda for the rest of my life. I'm there for two weeks. He said, well, that's nice, but we live in America. Yeah, but let me ask you, compared to eternity, what's longer? Two weeks in Uganda compared to a life in America or a life in America compared to eternity in heaven? What's longer? Eternity's a lot longer. So I, I think we need to shift our thinking. And we need to wake up to the fact. In fact, this is the reason. If you understand, if you want to understand why does Cross Life Church exist, why would we come here to start this church? I'm telling you, the reason we did this is to come to a new place. We, you know, we, again, we had some connections here in the past, but to come to a place where we didn't know a ton of people where we could 
put on missionary lenses and we could begin to think as missionaries. He said, we don't need missionaries. We have tons of churches. Yeah, the area is over church, but it's under gospel because there's just too many people living here still thinking that we have an institutional privileged mindset centralized in our church buildings and not coming here thinking that we are a movement marginalized, decentralized, sharing the gospel in the community. Too, Christ, too many Christians, professing Christians, are defending a plot of land in this part of the country and in the Bible Belt, and they're not concerned about the neighborhoods and the communities and taking the gospel to the least of these. We fight over the people that are disenfranchised with churches. Most churches do all of their evangelism and all of their programs. Understand, look at your average church, and they're all geared, and I'm not saying this is all bad, but they're all geared towards being attractive to other Christians who are frustrated at their church or people who have just become unchurched, but they still grew up in church. So how do we get people that are, are on, the, on the edge of church back engaged? Or how do we get people frustrated in other churches to our church? Let's create an awesome, cool environments and messages and music and whatever that it's more attractive to other consumers, Christian consumers. And, at what, and, and I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm, I'm thankful there's some churches doing that, but you know, there's tons of churches doing that. So that's not what Cross Life's going to be about. We're not here to do that. Other people are doing it. They're doing it well. We're not going for that. I, it was interesting when we first moved here, we, we met some guys that were um, starting a church, and I won't go into the whole, the whole history, but um, it, it was really, I'll, I'll say this, it was kind of a church split, and they talked about trying to work with us at one point, and we just said that's not what God's called us to be about. So God bless you, go for it, but uh, no. And then uh, it wasn't but two months later we heard them advertising on Christian radio. Advertising on Christian radio for their new church plant. Well, wh what kind of sense does that make? How many lost people are listening to Christian radio? How many people far from God are listening to K-Love? I, I don't know, but I would say probably not a lot. But is that, is that really where you're going to go to fish, to find people that are far from God? You know, forget the radio stations. Forget trying to do church programs. So we're saying, you know, let's... Start a church where we live and we have a posture of, of living and doing life as missionaries. That's why the subtitle of this is Gospel Community on Mission. We are calling, we are trying to, and our prayer is that the DNA of Cross Life Church, that the DNA of Cross Life Church will be a group of believers who love each other like brothers and sisters in Christ with our imperfections, with our junk, with our issues, with our dysfunction. We love one another. Even though it's difficult to love one another, we love one another because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And our commitment to one another through Christ is stronger than the differences and the dysfunction and our self-protectionism that we live under. And number two, that we'd have a people of, of, of God, a gospel community that looks to the people outside the church as the lost sons and daughters of God those that were created in the image of God with purpose, with dignity, with worth, with value, and they need to know the God who created them. And instead of us trying to create some Christendom kingdom paradise that would be attractive to other people, frankly, that already know God, let's forget that stuff and let us just go out into the highways and the byways and wash feet and serve people and love people that need a friend that need somebody 
who cares about them, not just wants to give them a cool brochure to invite them to an event, but literally cares about them, will invite them to come over even though they don't know Jesus, to hang out, to do life with them, to be a part of them, to come into our life groups and belong so that by God's grace they would one day believe. But most churches have a posture where they say, you know, you can come. And if you want to be a part of us, first we want to know, do you believe? And if you believe, then you can then you can belong. But if you don't believe, you can't come in. That's what we're not saying. We're saying, come, belong, be a part of us. Well, aren't you concerned there's going to be some people with some rough backgrounds? There's going to be people with some rough issues. There's going to be people with some stuff that are going to be around your kids and around your, yeah, well, I'm not going to let them babysit my children. But I don't mind them being in my house. I don't mind them being around my family. I don't mind them seeing how we do family. I don't mind my kids. Let me tell you something. Our goal with the way that we raise our kids is not to isolate them. You say, well, you're homeschooling them. It's not to isolate them, I can assure you. We've been working with college students for like 11 plus years. Well, the whole time our kids have been alive. They've been, known college students that would come in our house that would have all kind of different issues and dysfunctions, and they would hear conversations, and they would see things. They'd see them coming and making a decision to follow Christ, and then the next week, back in the world and making horrible choices, and they'd hear about their, you know, friend that was in our house eating dinner that now is in jail because the guy stole some money for drugs and did whatever, and they'd pray for him, pray that God would turn his life around, pray that God, they know that there's consequences for bad decisions. They understand that stuff. Okay, they're, my, our, our kids, we want to isolate them uh, from, um, from, and we want to protect them from things, but we don't want our kids to grow up naive. And they're not naive. Our kids understand that, that man, you walk away from God and you live for yourself and you're going to, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. Again, we try to protect them from certain things. They don't, not expo- exposed to everything. We try to limit that. But my goal isn't to isolate ourselves so we can have a little Christian bubble. Our goal is to raise up kids that are going to make an impact on the lostness of the world. Raise up kids that are going to make um, greater impact for the proclamation of the gospel. That's, that's the goal. That's our prayer. And so it begins with thinking and realizing that we have a different homeland. Boy, I'm uh, way off the uh, notes here, but let me get back on track. Um, pilgrims, sojourners, citizens of heaven, by God's gracious choosing, living in a land that doesn't understand our faith and is increasingly hostile towards it. Understanding that our citizenship helps us not define our lives. Um, our citizenship helps us to not define our lives by this land, but to understand that our, our lives should be defined by heaven. We live for eternity. We don't live for the temporal. And so knowing that we're citizens of Christ, that that's where our, our loyalty is, that that's where we, we, um, we park our, our hopes and dreams, you know, that, that's my ultimate passport, I can live in this temporal world with a different mindset. And I don't have to get upset and get my feelings hurt when they don't like me or understand me. When they don't vote my way. When they don't, you know, talk my way. When they play stuff that, that they shouldn't play or their movies are what they're not supposed to be or they're this or that. Or I don't have to get mad about that because you know what? I'm just a visitor. I mean, think about it quite literally. There was a movie called Possession that the subtitle is Fear a Demon Who Does Not Fear God. Now, first of all, every demon was created by God as an angel that rebelled against God. And it's, there is not a demon who doesn't fear God. And yet that's what was played in this theater the last three Sundays. This theater. You say, how could you stand for that? 
I mean, we should not meet in a theater that plays stuff like that. You know, we're just sojourners. We just visited here. We don't own anything. Just renting space. Just passing through. We just got a tent here we set up once a week to, to be a light in the dark world. That's what we're called to. And the posture of what we do on Sunday morning should be the posture of what we do every day in the, in the world we live in. I'm not here to fight over whether people watch the Possession movie or don't watch the Possession movie. I would wish that people would be smart enough not to watch a stupid movie like that and waste their money on it. But you know what? That's not my, I don't have a dog in that race. I want them to know Christ because if they know Christ, they'll realize that, that all demons are fearful of Christ. And they flee from him. And he has power over them. That's probably the place we should spend our energies. We are in a different homeland. Realize your homeland. We are outsiders. Our values, our lifestyles, our priorities, relationships should be radically different to the world around us. And if they are, you're not going, you're not going to fit in. So stop trying to get, you know, poster boys and girls for Christianity. Trying to, you know, it's like, it, it amazes me when, when some Christian, or no, not Christian, but some like sports figure becomes a Christian. Or, or some um, musician says that they're a Christian, and we're like, oh, yes, finally. We got somebody on our team. Yeah, they can see that Christianity's cool. Yeah, I don't think that really matters. I mean, praise the Lord for, I mean, I would pray that Madonna would find hope in Christ, but if, you know, Madonna being a Christian is not going to add anything to Jesus. And his name is beautiful and wonderful, and he can save the highest and the lowliest. I pray that Madonna would give her life to Christ. I pray that she would be a follower of Jesus one day. But you know what, whether she does, not that she's really cool now, I guess that would be probably not a cool, I don't know who's a cool person, but, but I'm just saying, she's kind of anti-Christian out there, that's why I pick her, but whatever. Anyway, let's move on. Um, so, outsiders, so seek the, the peace and prosperity. Last thing I'm going to say about this, to tie it together, we might not get as far as I hoped today, but um, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, let me just read it for you, it says, seek the peace and prosperity of the land. And that is a reference, that is a quote from Psalms 34, which is quoting a concept from Jeremiah 29, which you might know Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plan to prosper, not for calamity, not for, you know, we know that verse, but we don't, what we don't understand is the context of that verse. And the context of that verse is God's people were led into captivity as a response to their sin. And in captivity, God said, look, while you're in captivity, you have two options. You can be bitter and mad that you sinned and you're suffering the consequences of your sin and live hateful and mad and angry and bitter against the Babylonian people who have destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem. Or you can get married, you can get houses, plant vineyards, plant crops, have babies, live life, and pray for the good of Babylon. Pray for the good of your nation because if Babylon prospers. If your city prospers, then you're going to prosper. If things are good for your town, then they'll be good for you. So just pray. Just live there and be a light. Though you're dispersed through the nations, though you're scattered and you're in exile, be a light there. Stop getting mad about the way Babylon does things. I didn't call you to live in Babylon forever. You're just going to be there for 70 years, which is about the time of a lifetime, right? You're going to be there for 70 years. And, and while you're in Babylon, be a light. Live for the gospel. Pray for the prosperity of your city. Because if your city prospers, and we're not talking about finances, if your city does well, you will do well. And so in the context of that, he says to them, to those who are the elect exiles with 
the mindset of Jeremiah 29 in his head. You're in Babylon, but you are chosen. God placed you there by his choice. You have been chosen. And God has chosen you into salvation, okay, not for you um, to gloat in some kind of pride or to be a person of privilege or to be a person of... He has chosen you for a mission. And for no other reason, he's chosen you for a mission. And you are here in this nation, in this moment, in this community to be on mission. And so God has placed you here, but understand your homeland is not here. Realize your homeland. Secondly, realize your father. Verse 3. Realize your father. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. If you look at 1 Peter 1, 23, it says this. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What he is talking about there, without going into great detail, is perishable seed would be you're born of, of an earthly father and mother, perishable, temporal, as compared to now you've been born again into eternal life, imperishable, eternal. You see the contrast? You, you have a new father now. Now, I don't know if you had a good father, if you had a bad father. If you had a great relationship with your father, you had a bad relationship. If you knew your father, you didn't know your father. Regardless of what your understanding of your earthly father is, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, whatever, you have a heavenly father. Those of you that have faith and trust in Christ, you have a new heavenly father. And you have been born now anew, afresh, again. You're a new creature. You're, new, you're a new person. And so understand, realize your identity flows from a homeland, which is heaven, and a father that you have been born again. He has caused you to be born again. And that phrase there, quite literally, listen to the phrase there, and this is a great translation. He has caused you to be born again. God has worked to open your eyes. Now, none of you are responsible for your birth, physically or spiritually. That's right. I, th- I think it's funny that we sometimes we call kids illegitimate kids. Well, they, that's an illegitimate kid. There's no illegitimate kids. There's illegitimate parents. Okay, there's no illegitimate. Yeah, every kid is legitimate. Every kid has purpose, dignity, worth. Even though you'll be able to abort one for ten bucks here in the coming years, um, just a simple copay uh, with our tax payer payer dollars. But that's a whole other subject. But 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 no kid is illegitimate. Man, they all have purpose, worth, dignity. Illegitimate parents. No illegitimate kids. And he's saying, you have been caused to be born again. God has caused you. He has put to motion. He has drawn you to himself. He has opened your eyes to salvation. He has saved you. What an awesome thought. What an awesome thought. Realize your father. Thirdly, realize your hope. You've been, according to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. What is a living hope? This is such, this passage in this chapter is so beautiful when we were praying about what we would call this church before God kind of put cross life on our map as a name that would explain the gospel, dying to live, cross life. Two of the ones that we had wrestled with because I had been studying through First Peter was sojourners, something to realize, you know, talking about exiles or sojourn or whatever. And the other thing was living hope because I just love this concept of an assured hope. It, it, it means that a hope that is not, extinguished by untold circumstances. A hope that will not be put out regardless of the circumstances of your life. Think back over the last 
four months, three months, six months. Think of the worst day for you. I mean, the worst phone call, the worst thought, the worst circumstance that has come your way. And that is what he's talking about. He's talking about when that, when that, when that phone call comes, when that moment comes, when that situation erupts in your life, that tribulation comes, whatever the, th- the thing is. This living hope is a, is a, a hope that is not extinguished, not put out by those circumstances. Um, another guy said, and it liveth, it doth not, obviously British guy, not perish like the hopes of this world, but it lives on in ever fuller joy till it reaches its consummation in heaven. I love it. He's saying that this living hope grows fuller and more confident and more beautiful and, and, and greater in your life until it reaches its its climax, its consummation when you are in heaven and that hope is completely realized. As you live as a follower of Christ, your need for the gospel grows. The beauty and the wonder of the love and the the grace of Christ grows as you realize how messed up you are and you realize how awesome God is and that gap of awareness of the gap between how awesome God is and how bad you are. Jesus becomes fuller and greater and that living hope grows and grows and grows until such a time we find ourselves in heaven and there's the consummation of that living hope. It, the, but understand that the opposite of living hope is a fear, is living a life where you fear the future. It's a life of what ifs. I don't know if you've been there before. You will be. <laughs> I think all of us have moments and times, probably maybe for some of you, this is a moment-to-moment struggle where you're, you have constantly have to call yourself not to fear the future. Every moment is a challenge where you, you, you just, you're wired in a way that you are very frightful and fearful about the future. For, for some of you, it might be weekly or monthly or once a year that you just really struggle with fears of the, but the opposite of living hope is fear of the future. When we're confident in the living hope that we have through Christ, and we don't have to fear the future, regardless of whatever comes, it's not going to be a problem. God, it, it will flow through his hand and he'll have a purpose in it and I can trust him with it. And to rest in that, to constantly be calling yourself back to that truth. Man, that is a great place to be. Realize your homeland, your father, your, your hope. Fourthly, realize your inheritance. He says, we have a living hope. What is our living hope in? What is this confident, solid hope in through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the fact that Jesus is not in the grave, we have a living hope. So what am I supposed to base my hope on? The fact that Jesus isn't dead anymore, that should be a pretty good thing to put your hope in. I mean, if he was dead, no hope. No hope. If he's in dead, we, if he's dead, we, sh- we shouldn't be wasting our time here this morning. But the fact is, he is not dead. He is alive. He is powerful, and he is awaiting the Father's command to come and set this world straight. And until he does that, there's the freedom for others to repent and follow Christ. And we have a living hope of a future inheritance that is imperishable. Inheritance is to receive something of a considerable value which has not been earned. That's what an inheritance is. When, I get it, when you get an inheritance, you're receiving something of value that you didn't earn. Now, that's completely different. In our culture, we think that when you know, we deserve our inheritance from our parents, my parents better give me an inheritance. I deserve an inheritance. No, it is quite the definition of inheritance that you do not deserve it. You didn't earn it. It is a gracious gift of value 
you didn't earn. You don't deserve. That's the nature of an inheritance. You know, my my prayer is that, man, we give, we we spend every dime for the proclamation of the gospel that God entrusts us with, that we further the kingdom and be strategic with our finances, and at the end of our lives, we bounce the last check. And that's what we leave our kids. Because the greater heritage would not be money in a bank, but it would be parents that lived and um, proclaimed the gospel with every last ounce that God entrusted them with. That's the greatest inheritance to give our kids. That is something of eternal value. Man, that is something of some weight that is awesome that none of us are deserving to be a part of. That would be an awesome inheritance. But realize, we have an inheritance that is imperishable. In other words, it is incorruptible. Imperishable. It literally means incorruptible. Um, It's not at risk of being taken away. Secondly, it's undefiled, meaning that it's unstained by evil. It's a picture of the pure sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament. We have, a, we have an inheritance that is undefiled. It's a perfect, undefiled inheritance. It is imperishable, undefiled. Thirdly, it's unfading, meaning that it's, it's, it's not losing its brightness, unfading. Um, one lexicon put it this way. It said, the inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time, untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is composed of immortality, purity, and beauty. That's the inheritance. And where is it? It is kept in heaven. It's kept in heaven. And and this word kept means that God has it secured now and forevermore. That's the word they're using. It is kept securely, confidently, completely in heaven. By who? By God. Kept in heaven for you, for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 John 2, 19 says, they went out from us because they were not of us. What does that mean? It means that when you repent of your sins and you put your faith and trust in Christ, you will awaken to the reality sooner or later that you did not choose God. That you might walk through the doorway that says, you know, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you might see that need for salvation and call upon Christ to save you, but you will walk through that doorway and you will look back over your shoulder one day and you will say, chosen before the foundation of the earth. Now you say, well, how do you explain that? That we chose God, but he really chose us. How do you reconcile that? You don't have to reconcile it. I don't understand it, but I know it's true. I know it's true. And the more I grow in Christ, the more I realize that it is not the fact that I'm smarter than everybody else, that I decided to follow Christ and everybody else is stupid. It's the fact that God, by his grace, has opened my eyes to my need of salvation. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. So you're saying that that man doesn't have responsibility? Oh, no, I am not. Man will be held accountable. Every man has the opportunity to repent and put their faith and trust in Christ. Every person has that opportunity. Every person has that potential. But will they realize it apart from God opening their eyes and and showing them their need? And that's what you can debate. But you walk through... And then you look back over and you realize God has caused me to be um, born again. And he has given me inheritance that is kept in heaven securely until we get there one day. And so you know what? I can't lose what I didn't get. I can't undo what I didn't choose, what I didn't secure, what I don't maintain. God maintains it. You don't maintain it. You say, well, what about the guy that seems to be following Christ and then he walks away and he goes off into the world? That's why I read 1 John 2, 
19. It's because he went out from us because he was not with us. There's a lot of people who profess faith in Christ, but they've never repented and put their trust in Jesus, and they have not been born again. And time reveals that. And, and, and those people, you pray for them, and you love them, and you encourage them, and you call them back to faith in Christ. But understand that if you have a relationship with Christ, it is kept for you, guarded. Your faith and your salvation is guarded by God in heaven. And it will be revealed in the last time. What it means is future salvation, that one day you'll die and be in the presence of the Lord. It means you, you are saved. You're in the process of being sanctified and saved. You will one day be saved when you die. Salvation is past, present, future tense. I don't have time to go on that. We'll talk more about that in another time. So what does all this have to do with community and thriving? Well, here's what, let me, let me land the plane here for you. Understand that in the world we live in, as Christianity is continuously marginalized on the, around the earth and certainly in our country, don't be upset about that. Don't freak out about that. Stop getting mad about that. Realize that God has called us to thrive in that. And the way we thrive is through realizing we have a different homeland. Realizing that we have a father that has caused us to be born again by an imperishable seed. Understand that, that we have a hope that is a living hope. We have an inheritance that he has provided for us that we will get to realize and enjoy one day in heaven. And realize, lastly, that we have a mission he has called us to be about. And this is beautiful. If you will rewind on your Bibles back to verse 2, and we'll end with this. He says, To the elect exiles of the dispersion, verse 2, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ. What is he saying? I believe he is coming back to what the heartbeat of gospel community is to be about. The heartbeat of why we exist as a church, the way we define ourselves as God has called us to make disciples. And we want to be about the proclamation of Jesus and the, and the making of disciples. That's what we want to do. You say, well, how do you make disciples? Well, we've said this before. Hopefully you're at the point where you can now somewhat recite it. But we, we believe making disciples is to be about uh, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, right? Being changed by Jesus and on mission with Jesus. That's a disciple. Interestingly enough, that's the three points you find in verse 2. Let me show you. In verse 2, he says, according to, he's caused you to be born again according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's a picture of you're following Jesus. These are people who have followed Jesus. Secondly, in sanctification of the Spirit, Jesus is making you more like him and he's changing you. The process of being changed by Jesus in his spirit. And thirdly, for obedience to Jesus Christ. What has he called us to be about? What has he called us to be obedient about? Well, first and foremost, the last thing he said before he left the earth was go make disciples. So he called us to be obedient to the mission for which he called us to. So simply put, what has he called us to? How do we thrive in a world where Christianity is marginalized? We thrive by realizing our homeland, our father, our living hope, our inheritance, and being on mission until Jesus comes back. And what it means to be on mission is, and here's the question for you, here's your application. Am I following Jesus in my life? Am I following Jesus in my life? This is simply put, are, are you following Jesus in your life? Have you yielded your life to Christ? Number two, am I in the process of being changed by Jesus? Can I point to, can I see progress? Can I see um, slowly how God is conforming me to look more like Jesus. Is there changes happening in my life? And thirdly, am I on mission with Jesus? Do I care more about the lost world around me than my agenda, than my schedule, than my stuff, than my 
rights than my whatever? Or do I care more about the lostness of the world around me? Do you know Jesus? Are you being changed by Jesus? Are you on mission with Jesus? Because if you're not, then you can't call yourself a disciple. God has called you to a living hope kept in heaven, secure, caused you to be born again. Are you about these things? You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know if I've been caused to be born again. Well, I have got good news for you this morning that God has invited you into a relationship with him. You would not be here if God had not pursued you. You would not be here. You would not have woken up and come into this room this morning if God was not drawing you into himself. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, I call you this morning to repent of your sin and to put your faith in Jesus Christ, who you were created to know and to proclaim. And in that, you will find true life, a living hope. If you're a believer, get back to the business of living for a homeland that is not on this temporal globe. Let's readjust our lives. Readjust. And understand, me, like you, we're going to have to change our thinking. For me, it was necessary for me to pick up and move my family to help me think that I'm in a different homeland. Okay, hopefully you don't have to do that. But maybe God will call you at some point to move some other part of the world. But nonetheless, as he has placed you here for such a time as this, live according to eternal home life. Live on mission. Let's pray. Well, Father, in these moments, as we reflect upon what you have said to us through your word, God, I pray that in the weeks to come, as we look at this concept of thriving as followers of Christ, that, God, you would help us, that you would grant us the grace to see our identity differently, that we would see our lives as just passing through. We would recognize we're exiles, we're sojourners, we're just traveling through. And God, I pray that we would be about that which is eternal, not which is a temporal. That we would live for an inheritance that is eternal, not an inheritance that is temporal. That we would live for Jesus whose name and his word is eternal, not temporal. Father, would you grant us the grace to understand these wonderful, freeing, awesome truths. And God, may you multiply the gospel community of Cross Life Church, that we would be a gospel community on mission for your glory. In Jesus' name, we pray, we give, we reflect.